Welcome back, Art World. I am Miss Art World, Catherine, with my co-host, Lisa. What's up, guys? Uh, so we have a very exciting guest with us. Um, it is artist Michael Pierce. Welcome, Michael. Hi there. Did I say your last name right? Yeah. It's an easy awesome. one. <laughs> We've had some complicated last names, yeah. and I'm like, mm. We both feel like anxiety. Like, who's going to do the intro? <laughs> So Michael is an artist. You also, we were looking you up, um, you have your Master's of Fine Art and you have your PhD. What's your PhD in? Uh, I did my PhD on uh, about as abstruse a topic as you could possibly think of. I went and looked around Neolithic British sacred sites and how you could apply Neolithic principles of art making uh, to modern art, to contemporary art. And you also are a professor at Cal Lutheran. That's right. How long have you been teaching there? Oh, goodness, must be 14 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, unbelievably. It feels like I got there last Thursday. <laughs> Still learning, That's like, yeah. <laughs> where to go. Where's, where's yeah. my classroom? <laughs> So uh, we invited you to be on the podcast, mainly because you're an amazing artist, but you have also um, are curating a show at Studio Channel Islands Art Center, which is located in Camarillo. Uh, can you talk about what the show is and how it came about and curating? Just all the questions. Sure. Uh, so I've curated many shows. I used to run a gallery at the university, uh, and uh, I stopped doing that a few years ago. Uh, but I kind of regretted losing the opportunity to show the art that I think is important uh, and uh, especially relevant to what's going on today in the art world. And uh, so I, I spoke to Peter Tyus, who, who's the director of the gallery here uh, at uh, Studio Channel Island, uh, and asked him if, I, if he would be interested in me curating a show for him uh, about uh, imaginative realism. Uh, which is a, a really interesting thing that's going on uh, in the realist art world today. Uh, and I thought uh, how wonderful it would be uh, to bring together a whole bunch of artists, who are uh, living artists, uh, who have created uh, works of art which are not just beautiful uh, and technically well-made, uh, using old master's techniques, uh, but also painting things that aren't real, things that are impossible. Like, like what you used to call fantasy art in the 20th mm -hmm. century. I think that's a, an outdated and, and slightly pejorative term, so I don't use it. I call it imaginative realism, and sort of many, many people in the art world now, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and uh, so the, the show is uh, uh, a really wonderful experience. You're going to see pieces by Richard MacDonald uh, and uh, uh, Regina Jacobson, for example, uh, and Boris Vallejo, giant of uh, fantasy art from the 20th century, uh, Julie Bell, Pamela Wilson. It's, it's a wonderful show. You've got to come see it. This is it's really incredible, and that's actually where we are recording from right now. Um, and these pieces are amazing. And the show opens next weekend. Saturday. Right, on Saturday. On Saturday, and I believe that's it's April 6th. Yes. From 4 to 6? Right. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we will post all this information on Instagram and our website as well. Yes. <laughs> so where did you find this uh, collection of artists? Um, well, some of them I've shown before. Um, some of them are connected one way or another with the conference that I run, the Representational Art Conference. 
uh, and I've invited them to come and speak and uh, participate at the conference. And uh, because the theme of the conference is, is the same world as the show, uh, talking about imaginative realism, it made sense to ask them if they wanted to show work as well. Uh, so I did. Uh, Roger Dean, for example, is going to, speech, uh, to speak uh, at the conference, and he's, he's got a couple of his uh, paintings uh, in the show. He's the guy who designed all the Yes album covers. You remember those fantastic, mm, yeah. wonderful paintings? Goodness, they're gorgeous uh, and, and so cool to have a couple of them in the show. And they're big, too. They're six feet wide, four feet high. It's not like oh you're looking gosh. at a little CD cover <laughs> yeah. thing. They're enormous mm-hmm. and really rich to look at. It's a peachy thing to have those in the show. And uh, I mean, for me, I remember having Yes albums when I was 15 and, and <laughs> just gazing at the Rilea and, mm-hmm. and looking at these, these fabulous landscapes and, uh, and just being being smacked over the head by them because they were so wonderful and uh, to actually meet him and talk to him and, and uh, show his work is just I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy shop <laughs> I might just drool a little bit <laughs> it's awesome to be able to work with those artists that you have admired and get the opportunity to like handle their artwork yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's something else and you just uh, you don't have these experiences every day I feel incredibly blessed uh, to be able to meet these folks because they're they're so cool and yeah. so interesting. Roger hates the term fantasy art. Oh, you, yeah, you can't say fantasy art around him. He he takes it as a personal insult. Wow. Well, right. it ties noted. In, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it ties in with 20th century thinking. You know, if you if you had uh, shown Clement Greenberg uh, these paintings, he would have laughed because mm. he was all over abstract expressionism and uh, and the American avant garde, right? Uh, but that uh, that philosophy is really old now. It's out of date. I mean, that was almost 100 years ago. You know, Clement Greenberg's essay came out in, what, 1939? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, the, uh, the essay, I mean, avant-garde and kitsch, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so all that stuff is really old and dated. And we, since then, we've had uh, McEverly's book uh, talking about how, uh, how the avant-garde is really a Western-centric uh, tradition, and we need to expand out of that. And even after that, we've had this whole explosion of postmodernism, which has completely trashed the theories of the avant-garde uh, and uh, really expanded the, the, uh, the openness of the art world uh, to include things that would have been excluded before. Which is really what I think art does, is it takes what people say is art and then challenges that. And so I feel like now you were saying before we started the podcast that, that these pieces would have been not considered art but they're so relevant to what painters are doing today. Like this is what um, um, realism or imaginative realism is doing now. Yeah. And so they're, they are the contemporary pieces. Yeah, I think what has happened is that um, since 9-11, I would guess, you, you've seen a, a kind of hostility uh, towards um, uh, avant-garde art, which was hostile. Right and and uh, uh, shock art, that kind of stuff. It was uh, repulsive art. The Chapman brothers and things like that. It's, it's kind of revolting, right? And many many people didn't want to look at that kind of work, and they wanted to say, okay, well, why do we have to do this? Why can't we look at beautiful things? 
And uh, so you had this um, movement, the Atelier movement, that started in the late 20th century, in fact, uh, and uh, that really boomed after 9-11. So you've got a lot of people who are very, very highly trained painters now, and sculptors too, uh, who are firmly back into the the traditional techniques of, uh, of making paintings. And so where do you go from there? Because it's one thing to be extremely highly trained and make a portrait of a person, right? And you see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, really skilled portraiture, skilled landscape painters. But but where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's where things start getting really interesting because you get this really imaginative stuff starting to happen. And I think it has a lot to do with the the um, acceptance of, uh, of fantasy and science fiction films uh, and comic books in the mainstream mm-hmm. uh, that we've seen this. Uh, because although although this kind of art was sidelined, it was still bubbling away beautifully in the 20th century when Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and all that <laughs> stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone loves those movies. Goodness gracious, they're the most popular movies ever made, probably. Mm. Uh, so it's not like there isn't this cultural background for, for imaginative realist painting and sculpture. It's just taken a while for it to be accepted uh, as a, a valid and important form of making art. And, and postmodernism's done that for us. I think, thank, thank goodness for postmodernism. Uh, because it's opened up uh, art to everything. Everything's equal. Mickey Mouse and Caravaggio. <laughs> what would you say is the defined difference between someone who would call themselves a fantasy artist and a imaginative realism? realism? Um, uh, uh, probably not that much, except okay. in terms of period. Okay. Uh, I think uh, that you might have used the term fantasy art in the 20th century mm-hmm. when it was something that was used to sort of condemn the people making it. You're not a real artist, you're an illustrator. Okay. You're a fantasy artist, mm-hmm. right? It's this sneery kind of <laughs> rude term. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's over. Okay. It's just, it's done. It's such an old-fashioned thing that's being said by, you know, black wearing men standing in corners of dark galleries <laughs> smoking gorwas and wearing a beret. I love the visual. Right? No, and it's just such old hat. Mm-hmm. This is new, it's fresh and it's young and people understand it. They can look at the, these paintings and, and know where to start. They, mm-hmm. they're, pe- they're people, they're paintings of people doing things and they might be strange things and they might be mysterious but isn't that a wonderful yeah. place to start, right? It leads you into this imaginative journey it's so exciting yeah you can really step into the paintings Mm. and enter into this world and I was saying earlier is you really have to spend time with each because there's so much detail um, that you can just discover something new as long as you're standing in front of it I'm really excited about this show I am as well can you talk a little bit about the conference that you're doing yeah, the Representational Art Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Track uh, 2019. Uh, it's taking place up at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Ventura. Starts on Sunday, the 31st, which is tomorrow. Uh, we're open to the public. Please do come and, uh, and participate. You have to buy a day pass. Uh, we have some wonderful stuff. Uh, probably the best way to find out about it is to visit the website, of course, which is uh, uh, track2019.org. Uh, so I uh, recommend uh, going to see track2019.org uh, for details about it. Uh, keynote speakers every morning. Um, 
uh, we have a Tuesday is a big gallery day, uh, and we're going to visit uh, four different shows on, on Tuesday, wow. which is awesome. We start up at the Carnegie, where they have a show called The Imaginary, and then we come here to see The Illusionist, and then we go over to the University, to Kalu, uh, and we see a show at the Quanfong Gallery there, and then uh, the Roland Gallery, where there's a, a show by, uh, of paintings by Rigoberto Gonzalez. Amazing paintings. Mm. Just vast, great. Yeah. Well, the big one is, is huge, must be 20 feet wide, uh, of a border shooting and it's from uh, the the uh, valley in Rio Grande Valley in Texas, and boy, what a life people are living on the border down there. Mm. Just intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, cartel shootings and police, and you don't know who's on which side. And it doesn't matter what uniform they're wearing, because you've got informers in the cartels and you've got uh, in the car- in the uh, police as well from each other's side, right? So he's painted a bunch of uh, really intense paintings there, and really worth seeing. Wow. That's at the Roland Gallery at uh, CLU. And this is a conference that happens annually, so if someone Sort of. Okay. Yeah, uh, we've had six. Uh, This started in 2012, uh, and that was here at the Crown Plaza again uh, in Ventura. Uh, And we did it three times there. Then we went to Florida, and then we went to the Netherlands. Oh, interesting that it travels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it has traveled. And Mm -hmm. now back to Ventura. Awesome. Is there membership opportunities for people to join the conference, or is it day passes and an advisory board? How does it run? Um, there's a, a group at Caldu uh, who organize it when we're here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have, uh, what, four or five people on the, on the uh, committee that organizes things, and there's an awesome group of people. Uh, Cindy Keitel, Jeff Miller, uh, Terry Spiha, uh, myself, and Rachel Schmidt. And uh, all of us have, uh, uh, we have a very good relationship with each other. We get on like a house on fire. And everyone knows what everyone's doing. <laughs> yeah. And it's really nice to have a good team. You've got to have a good team yeah. on any enterprise, right? And Absolutely. we really have a good team. Mm. Super nice people. Yeah, Mike Adams, of course, he uh, uh, founded the conference with me, but he retired a few years ago. We really miss him. Mm. As a whole, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike is such yeah. a great guy. <laughs> Cheers to you, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really cool. That's an awesome opportunity. So, well, the, the other thing at the conference is not just uh, people giving speeches, right? Mm-hmm. But we also have some really great demonstrations in the evenings. Okay. Yeah, some some awesome demonstration stuff. Uh, uh, Ponzio, uh, Alicia Ponzio is going to be down here, uh, sculptor, terrific sculptor. Uh, she'll be doing some work and uh, uh, demonstrating how to sculpt from imagination, which I can't wait to see. Yeah. Yeah, because she's a figurative sculpture. Okay. Sculptor. Uh, so, uh, you know, how do you craft a human body that, that skillfully uh, from mud, right? Yeah. <laughs> <It's a miracle. laughs> you know, we're looking at Richard McDonald's yeah. uh, sculptures right here. Uh, that's called Nightfall. And uh, I, I just can't believe how these people make things that look so. Yeah, so beautiful and mm-hmm. so lyrical, right? Yeah. And they're, they're poetry in motion, these things, and, and magical, and they're balanced. I mean, that figure's floating, right? Yeah. The, the only thing holding it, holding it up is the, uh, the drapery that's sort of wrapped around her leg. Wow. And it feels like the figure's actually levitating, you know, and he, he loves to play with yeah. that stuff. It's miraculous to me that sculptors <laughs> can do this. Yeah, so that's one of the real pleasures of track is the demonstrations. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. We have uh, Virgil Elliott, who literally wrote the book on traditional oil painting. In fact, if it wasn't for Virgil Elliott, I don't think I'd be painting today uh, because uh, he, I, I, I got his book in the mm-hmm. 1990s. 
uh, and uh, he literally taught me how to paint in his book, how to, how to use traditional oil painting techniques. And I don't think I'd be doing what I do now if it wasn't for Virgil. Yeah. Uh, so it's awesome. He's going to come and do a demonstration, and he'll be talking about painting. And we have Tim Jennison as well, mm -hmm. uh, who's the, the famous uh, uh, Tim's Vermeer movie uh, produced by Penn and Teller. Do you remember this movie? Mm -hmm. It showed you how to produce a Vermeer painting and how Vermeer may have used lenses uh, to, to create his paintings because there's something funny about Vermeer, right? When you look at them, they're too perfect. And uh, so Tim uh, got into the sort of lens theory of what he might have been using. And wow. the interesting thing is Vermeer lived next door to a lens maker. Oh, oh, snap. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, he had every access that you yeah. could imagine to this new technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so, And people get all upset about it because they want to think of Vermeer being this sort of miracle-working, yeah. wonderful painter. Uh, and the idea of him using technology is like taboo among people who are, uh, who are you know, traditionalists, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, boy, i got to say, Tim has spent millions of dollars on this. He, he's filthy rich. Yeah. Right? And, uh, he, I mean, he, he runs a, a tech company that uh, developed uh, video software. Uh, so he's got plenty of money to spend, and he spends it on his favorite thing, which is to explore Vermeer. Yeah. So he's done more research on Vermeer than anyone else possibly could have yeah. and with huge, huge resources. Oh, man. I mean, he built a house yeah. uh, where, where Vermeer probably painted the view of Delft. Right, wow. and he literally built a house there so that he could put put his lens equipment up on this uh, in the right place, looking out of the right spot, and capture the view. Right? That, I mean, it's, it's just mind-boggling. That's a lot. <laughs> I want to be so into something that I like have to just do a bunch of research and spend all my money on it. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the passion of finding something that you're just so enthralled with is mm -hmm. really um, it's really nice. Yeah. All artists have it. Yeah? Yep. What's, uh, Painters and sculptors, are, they're all obsessed with, with making stuff. They can't yeah. stop it. You can't help it. It's, you know, you, you stop a painter from painting or a sculptor from sculpting, mm -hmm. and they become a different animal. Yeah. They love to do it. Mm -hmm. How, going back to maybe like your background, when did you start painting? And <laughs> I was a terrible, terrible terrible student at school <laughs> and the only place I liked being at school was in the art room uh, and I just gravitated towards drawing and painting and loved it when I was maybe 14 or 15 I guess and uh, and I loved being in the studio and so that's that's where it all started for me was hating being at school because I was at this dreadful boarding school and didn't want to be there and uh, all I wanted to do was escape so, you know, I suppose you could say that my interest in imaginative yeah. realism is this sort of deeply seated yeah. uh, sort of escapism, right? I want freedom. Yeah. <laughs> right? But I don't know, that's a bit pop, pop psychology for you. <laughs> mm. Boarding schools are dreadful, by the way. Don't send your kids to boarding school. Oh, that's, it sounds bad. Were you in boarding school through your entire education up until college? Yeah, when I was a wow. kid, yeah, from 11 till 18. Wow. My brother was there even younger. He went to boarding school when he was nine. Mm. Oh, he my was goodness. Tiny. He was the smallest kid in the school. Was he your younger brother? Yeah, okay. yeah four years younger than yeah. me. Yeah. And then so you, did you go straight to um, get like a bachelor's? in art or like I said I was a terrible student yeah. and, uh, I did go to art school uh, right after I finished uh, boarding school 
um, and uh, uh, went to a, a small art and design school for a year, foundation course, and then uh, looked around at colleges, but uh, I, was, I was not a good student and, and not really interested in applying myself and working hard on the discipline that it actually takes to be an artist, right? I didn't realize. You know, the, people have this sort of fantasy version of being an artist, which means you hang around and go to parties and, and you know, have a nice time with your friends in coffee shops, right? That's got nothing to do with being an artist. Mm-hmm. But being an artist is brutally hard work. You're in the studio by yourself all the time and listening to Zeppelin and stuff, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, by yourself, right? And uh, I, I, I realized that actually, if you want to be an artist, you have to do that. You can't, you can't be a social butterfly. You have to be serious. You've got to get in the studio and work 24-7 if you can. And so that's, uh, that's the real deal with being an artist. Anyway, so... I, I wasn't good at art school, and it took me a couple of years to <laughs> settle down and find myself. And, and actually, uh, uh, in the 80s, when I was looking at art schools uh, for bachelor's degrees, you couldn't find traditional art. I wanted to be like Caravaggio. I wanted to paint, you know, dramatic, theatrical, spectacular things, uh, not make piles of shoes and wrap bits of string around mm-hmm. things and, you know, the, all that stuff that was going on in the 80s. It was dreary. And uh, so uh, I, I, I bailed out of art at that point and went into theatre instead and did really? lots of set design and lighting design. Well, think about it. That's Caravaggio. Yeah. Right? And on the stage, I could put a spotlight on someone and, and there's Caravaggio right there, <laughs> right? Except moving. It was fantastic. So this sort of theatricality, uh, I think that has a lot to do with this show too, by the way. You mm-hmm. look at these and there's, there's a lot of drama going on. They're like, they're like one-image dramas, Right, and, and that's yeah. I think the thing I enjoy most about them is that there's there's this sort of time element that goes into the paintings where you are only seeing one element and it's a frozen moment of time, but that you have to look at the paintings to catch the the narrative that's going on and understand what the story is. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the reasons I like these paintings so much is this this prolongation of of uh, our experience of them. And paintings are often referred to as being slow art, right? The slow art. That is a very new term, I think. We've never heard slow heard art. Oh, really? Mm-mm. Oh. Well, so, so slow art because they take time to, to grok in fullness, as Robert Heinlein said. Uh, you have to, you have to uh, um, uh, let them seep into you uh, without, uh, without being impatient with them. They, they're, they're a gradual development and a gradual understanding, right? For good paintings. I and mean, some paintings, you look at them and you're done. Yeah. Right? In fact, quite a lot of paintings. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so I look for paintings that make me wonder. I think paintings should induce in you uh, a capacity for wonder yeah. uh, to make them really worthwhile. And again, so many of these paintings in this show do that, mm-hmm. like the Richard McDonald's I referred to. I, I just gaze in wonder at Richard McDonald because he's so good. Yeah. <laughs> just the quality, it, not just the craftsmanship, but the idea, right? The technical qualities of it, uh, of a, a really good painting, uh, they, they have to be really well crafted uh, because the, the technical uh, process leads you beyond the materiality of the painting if they're well crafted, right? That's a clunky way of saying it. Uh, they, they, when they're well made, you don't, have to, you don't want to think about how they're made. 
right? And then you get sucked into that narrative and the image instead of the, the, the quality of the technical mastery of it, right? And then maybe you can step back from it and do that Kantian thing where you're interested in it and disinterested in it and uh, looking at it from a, from a more objective point of view uh, and considering it more, more you know, thoughtfully about technique and criti- criticize mm-hmm. technique, perhaps, right? But I think your first inclination when you see a painting is nearly always actually sentimental. You, you look at the painting and you're either in, in, in love with it or not. Uh, but you, you have this sentimental reaction, a sensual reaction to it first. And then you have the intellectual reaction to it later. Uh, and when you explore the meanings and the, the narrative of the, of the artist's life or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were at a show last night, and uh, it was in L.A., and it was figurative, and we spent the whole time being hung up on how poorly they were painted. Mm. Like, this hand is terrible. Like, we couldn't get into the work, like you were saying, because we were hung up on how poor the technique was. Yeah. So I think you're spot on with that. I think it's Absolutely. important. I do. I think it's a really important part of it. And a lot of people are, are trying to catch up to the figurative revolution that's been going on, because you've seen so much figurative work uh, pop up recently. Uh, probably, uh, I think, uh, thanks to the pop surrealist movement, Juxtapose magazine, High Fractose, uh, those kinds of magazines, right? And, and, and again, as I said, the fantasy, Lord of the Rings, science fiction, all that stuff. Uh, you're seeing that, that sort of popular culture impact what used to be uh, a, a different culture kind of art world. I talk about this uh, a bit um, in a couple of papers I've written uh, uh, about the bubble bath that we're in now. Postmodernism really makes us into a cultural bubble bath rather than there being a singular art world. Now there are many, many art worlds, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that sort of avant-gardist bubble that is deflated uh, and now it's just one bubble amongst many. They don't have that that, uh, hegemony of power uh, that uh, that used to be there uh, in the 20th century. Now you've got multiple bubbles, and, and all of them have different gatekeepers and different uh, theory and different people commentating and all that. Uh, so um, I, I think that's very healthy for the moment. I wonder what's going to happen in 30, 50 years. <laughs> yeah. I love that uh, bubble bath yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so you are a writer as well. Um, so what are you working on right now? Oh, goodness. So, um, uh, so many things. So uh, many. <laughs> I, um, I'm, 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 I've just written an article about this show, which is going to be in, in American Art Collector magazine uh, in a month or two. Uh, so keep your eye open okay. for that. Um, I'm writing two books. Uh, they keep sort of jumbling with each other. Uh, and so it's either one enormous book, yeah. which is just <laughs> way too long. must yeah. be 150, 200,000 words by now. Oh, my gosh. So it's just ridiculously too big. Uh, so I think it's actually two books. And I think one of them uh, is, uh, is really about uh, the play of art and power in the 20th century, especially in the 1930s. And how uh, how representational art became cast as the art of the enemy in the 20th century and how uh, the American radical avant-garde became uh, the art of the free west right? and how, the, how those two things crash into each other under Roosevelt and Hitler and Stalin 
Uh, so it's a fascinating history, and I don't think it's been written uh, before. We've always uh, had this sort of narrative of the avant-garde just being the, the, the natural progression of art history, right? I don't think so. I think that the avant-garde was a, a, a very political uh, tool of propaganda uh, that was used by the West uh, to uh, propagandize uh, the East in particular, but also to, to make sure that uh, uh, Western avant-garde artists and intellectuals uh, saw that they had a place in the West. Uh, America was very afraid of losing Europe to the socialists in, in, uh, the, uh, after the Second World War, right? And so by casting avant-garde art as the art of the free West, they ensured that left-wing uh, Europeans weren't going to go over to the communist side under Stalin. Instead, they would see their place of freedom in, in the West and uh, they were able to make their own work. Because in the, in the East, under Stalin, there's no way you can make avant-garde art. It was absolutely forbidden. You'd end up in the gulag or shot in the head if you were an avant-gardist artist mm -hmm. uh, under Stalin. And the same thing under Hitler. Uh, you know, you were not going to make avant-garde art under Hitler. You were out of the country or dead uh, under Hitler. So uh, there's this this um, this clear relationship of art and power uh, and propaganda going on. Uh, so that one's nearly finished. Uh, the other book uh, is uh, much more a, a sort of a commentary uh, on 21st century art, uh, and it's um, it's what I've been pulling my articles from. Uh, because I write, I write in the morning and paint in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Ideally, that's my 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 sort of routine uh, when I'm and, and I teach too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's my my daily routine, and I love doing all of it. I can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> and you curate so shows, and you put on a conference. <laughs> oh. Do you sleep? <laughs> uh, I wake up every day at about five o'clock. Okay. And go to bed at about eleven. Something like oh my goodness. You're doing it all, though. But I don't do Thank anything you. else. I have no life. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing this. What yeah. else am I going to do? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s, for goodness sake. <laughs> I'm going to die one day. <laughs> I want to make the best use of my time as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. I love doing this. There's yeah. nothing better. That's incredible. That's great. Um, going... So we haven't talked about your work really at all, your paintings. Right. Uh, so my paintings are, are very big uh, figurative paintings. Uh, you know, I would love to have my stuff in this show, but I thought it would be a bit self-serving, so I decided not to. Uh, but uh, it, it would be quite comfortable in this show. Um, I paint these uh, very large allegorical paintings. Uh, I'm almost at the end of painting a very big series of, uh, of 22 paintings, uh, all of them based on tarot cards. Okay. That's fascinating. Have I seen those? They weren't at the museum, were they? Yeah, they were those, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's only two more to paint, and I've done all 22. So I'm looking forward to finishing that series. They're, they're very big, they're colorful, they're, uh, they're mysterious. Um, I really like them. Yeah. <laughs> they really would fit in here, too. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they would fit quite nicely. I, my, having said that, I'm in awe of some of the technical prowess of these painters. You know, you look at Pamela Wilson's painting over there, and it's just radiant. Look at that light. Yeah. It's like it's, it's glowing off the wall. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Spectacular stuff. So, so you know, I, I love to curate shows um, and, uh, and get to spend my time with, uh, with paintings by other artists who I admire uh, because they're just so good. I love it. But, uh, so Vince Natal painted um, uh, an amazing little painting uh, that I'm looking at just over in the center of the room over there. Uh, and it's, uh, it's so unusual because he's clearly a, a brilliant realist painting. 
a painter, uh, but he's made this abstract painting, right? And so uh, you wouldn't find an abstract painter painting this painting because they wouldn't use the same techniques at all. They, they would never do that. And I think that's an amazing piece of work because it, it bridges that space uh, between realism and abstraction so nicely. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. We will definitely be posting a photo of it. And then he did another painting over on my left over there, which you can't see because it's around the corner. Uh, but uh, it's a, a wonderful skull uh, that's lying on a bed of red rose petals. And the, the really interesting thing about that is that it doesn't exist. When you look at it closely, at first you, you think it's just a skull, right? It's like a rabbit mm-hmm. skull or something like that. But then you realize that it doesn't make any sense. There's, yeah. no, there's no creature that ever had a skull like that. And uh, it, it's actually a, a skull of a demon of some sort, right? Straight out of a Hieronymus Bosch wow. painting. It's a completely invented thing. But it looks like it's a, a real skull. And, and so you get, and you get that from a lot of these paintings. You get this sort of shift and, and sort of uh, being put off balance by them. That you think you know what it is, and then you realize that's not what it is. Mm-hmm. Right, the Brad Kunkel painting uh, that we have here, uh, the history, uh, nature of history. Uh, this is the same kind of thing. You look at it and you think you know what's going on, but then you realize that the the swallows that are flying in the air, they, they're casting a shadow on the background. So there's not the sky; it's a wall. And then you double take because yeah. it's also when you go lower down the painting, it's it's the sky to this rather lovely natural background. And so uh, the, these things happen in these paintings that you think you know what's going on and then you, then you don't. Guy Kinnear uh, paints uh, um, a bunch of really fabulous stuff uh, like that. Uh, you look at his work and um, uh, you can see these kind of paper uh, and um, uh, cloth dolls. And at first you think they're totally fantastic, right? They're imaginary, but they're not. They're real. He's, he's the most realist painter out of all of them, in fact which is quite extraordinary too mm. because he, he lives out in the woods uh, you know, eight miles off of the, the metalled road wow. uh, on a dirt track uh, and uh, uh, he, he doesn't have internet and stuff out there uh, and so he's painting the actual landscape he lives in and he makes these props because he doesn't have studio mannequins mm-hmm. uh, and doesn't have models right? so he creates these dolls and uh, paper figures and, and paints them so he, actually he's the most realistic painter of the lot Wow. But he looks like the weirdest yeah. and most fantastic painter <laughs> right? in the world. That is fascinating. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to go back and really look at his piece now that I know that those figures mm-hmm. are yeah. real created pieces by him. Hmm. Yeah, they're, they're fabulously yeah. cool. Can you talk a little bit about your curating experience? Like, I'm sure you get a good amount of pieces from artists and then you... Do you choose the ones that you think would be good no, for the No, no. For this show, uh, what I've done is that, that I know these artists. You know, I've known them for many years, some of them. Um, so uh, I know what I'm looking at, and I know what I'd like to put into the into the show uh, deliberately to address this question about about how do you make something that's not real look real, right? And so I've been pay, I pay attention to what they've been doing and how they do it. Uh, and then kind of marry them all together and think, well, they, that would work with this and that. And uh, I have actually uh, had some ideas for the show which I didn't follow up on, which is sad because I want to show it all. You know, in my ideal show, uh, I would have uh, paintings um, like Botticelli in here, uh, and I would have uh, the Lion Man sculpture dating from 30,000 BC in here, and then a sculpture of Batman, 
mm -hmm. uh, with it, right? Because one of the things I really want to achieve with this show is to show that this, this imaginative realism that's happening now has incredibly deep roots, right? From the very beginning of art history, uh, you see imaginative realism happening. Uh, and, and it's never gone away. You know, Hieronymus Bosch, I mentioned earlier on, right? How about Christian icon painting? You see the same kind of detail in the work uh, in Christian icon painting and the same fanciful stuff going on, people floating. In Baroque paintings, you see uh, paintings rather like uh, Guy Kinnear's paintings here, right? Uh, the Assumption of, of the Virgin Mary. So you've got Virgin Mary floating up into the air, right? And Guy Kinnear is referencing that and also referencing things like Wonder Woman. Uh, mm. when, when Wonder Woman, at the end of the movie, is, is floating up in the air after having defeated the bad guy, right? And it's that same stream, it's the, this same uh, perennial um, idea that, uh, that fantasy and, and imaginative realism has always been there. It's this, this long thread that goes way back in time. Gustav Klimt takes uh, icon paintings and brings them into the modernist period, right? And then Pamela Wilson uh, does the same kind of thing and turns it into this, this uh, image of, of Baroque excess, except in the 21st century. Right, but they're still all in that same tradition. Cachuca uh, Diaz is painting, same thing. You've got these, these old legendary ideas. Uh, and the same Regina Jacobs. God, I could go through all of them. All of them are in this narrative that goes back centuries. Uh, Roger Dean is a, is really is a traditional landscape painter. Right? He, he goes around, draws the landscape, and then he, he says, okay, what if? What if? And isn't that a great question mm -hmm. for a painter to ask? Yeah. What if? What if I took this landscape and stretched it? Or, or what if it happened in a world with no gravity? Right? Mm -hmm. and, and so you end up with these wonderful ideas that, that take what's real and becomes, make it become something else, mm -hmm. something new. And a different way to look at a landscape. Yeah. yeah, but still really firmly placed within the narrative of art history. Right? You've still got that long tradition that's there. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Um, since we're coming to the end, I wanted to ask you, so you have your series that you said you're almost done working on. Right. What next for your work? Where does Ooh, it go from what there? What next for me? Um, so uh, I want to paint uh, some pagan paintings, I think. I'm not sure. That's a really hard question. <laughs> so uh, I'm interested. So technically, one thing I'm interested in painting big canvases with much more space in them, because I've been painting these big canvases which are quite detailed and busy, lots of stuff going on, and uh, I want to paint paintings which have uh, uh, more air, more more room in them, and smaller things happening, but on a very big scale. Uh, so I'm quite interested in that. Um, uh, I'm really interested in, uh, in paintings of, uh, of uh, uh, the moon and pagan Viking goddesses and uh, uh, that kind of stuff too. But where, how that forms, I'm not sure. I have sketches of, of sort of burning man punk rock kind of dreadlock people and they're walking down to the beach uh, and they're carrying bundles of firewood and uh, there's going to be a sacrifice. Right, and, and, and I have some idea of how that's going to take shape, but I need to fully form it. I have to finish the tarot card paintings first. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the priority. Do you have um, shows lined up for that series to be No, not at all. I okay. don't want to at the moment. Okay. No, I'm quite happy uh, to... Uh, I, I think after track, I'm, I'm going to calm down and quiet down <laughs> and, uh, and paint and write and 
be quiet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How long do you be quiet for? It'll take me a couple of years. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Well, I won't be quiet. I'm not <laughs> right. You know, yeah. you know what I mean. It won't yeah. be as frantic as it is when I'm doing yeah. these things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I need to. I need to build a new body of work, and uh, and also I need to sell the old body of work too, because uh, I still have quite a few of them that need to move. Uh, so I'll be looking for uh, museums and uh, people with some money to to take them on. Mm-hmm. So the artists that we've had on this podcast are kind of at a different level than you, um, not in a bad way, just um, more emerging. Um, and so we did want to talk to you about how do you, how do you get from being emerging to the level that you're at where you're showing at museums and you're... I remember your museum show where it then traveled. Like, that's amazing and super impressive for someone who is just emerging and, like, entering call-for-entry shows. Stop doing call-for-entry shows. Okay. <laughs> Build up a portfolio of, of, of a body of work. Do not make individual works of art. Don't think of it like that. Make it so that there's a body of work and that you have 20 or 30 paintings that all make sense together. Don't paint one still life, one landscape, one portrait, a picture of your dog. It's not good enough. You have to be serious about your body of work. Take it seriously. Think of it as a novel, mm. right? Second thing, work your ass off. Do not stop. Do not go to the coffee bar. Turn off your TV and throw it into the trash. You do not need it. And spend all your time in the studio working your ass off. Mm-hmm. Get serious. That's great. That's, that, no, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. perfect. And I think that's what um, our listeners are interested in hearing. And what they need to hear. Yeah. To be, you know, Netflix shouldn't be a thing that you watch. <laughs> I'm speaking you know, to myself if, if right here. If you have here. your self-control, yeah. then, you know, by all means. Mm. Uh, but but you, need to, you need to carve out those blocks of time when all you do is paint. And if you if you have a day job, then you probably don't have time for Netflix, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. your priority must be making art if you're going to do this. All the artists I know in this in this room spend all their time painting. They, I tell you, they do not go hang out at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Richard McDonald's hardest working person I've ever met in my life. I've, I've not uh, seen Roger Dean's studio, but I guarantee you, it's the same kind of thing. It's very very focused. He's not messing about. They're professionals. They treat it like this is the thing that's most important to them, and nothing else will get in its way. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely the priority. Pam Wilson does nothing but paint, you know, to the detriment of other sides of, of their lives, you know? Mm. And uh, if, it's, if it's important to you to be an artist, then be an artist. Don't fool around. Don't fool yourself, more importantly. Plato says, know thyself, right? If you're an artist, know how, what that means. Mm-hmm. And do it. Oh, that's super important to hear. Um, if people were trying to find you and your work, where would they go? They should go to gildedraven.com. Okay. And they will find me and my work. <laughs> I love that. Do you do any of the social media, Instagram type uh, of stuff? I'm on Facebook. I'm really bad at Instagram and uh, the other things. Um, but uh, Facebook, I'm on. And uh, you could message me on there if you needed to. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so would they go to your website to find your writing too, or is that... No, the writing's all over the place. So, um, I guess uh, they, they, if they do a Google search, they'll probably find some. But Michael J. Pierce 
uh, because there's a movie de- director called Michael Pierce. Oh. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> it's always the worst. Always. <laughs> yeah, so if they, uh, they do a Google search, Michael J. Pierce uh, art, then they'll probably find something. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Oh, and Tract, of course. They go to the uh, Tract magazine. Uh, that's the magazine I edit. And uh, I quite enjoy doing that. It's a lot of fun. Perfect. And that's part of the Track website, Track 2019 website. Okay, great. Yeah, track2019.org. .org. And there's a link up there. It says magazine. Just click on that. Okay. And there's a few pieces of mine there. Wonderful. Okay. So just uh, before we wrap up again, uh, the show at Studio Channel Islands will be opening April 6th mm-hmm. from 4 to 6. Um it's called Illusions. It's a free show. The Illusionist. The Illusionist. And it's amazing. We'll be taking a few photos and posting them when the show opens on our Instagram, Art World. Art World Podcast. Podcast. Gosh darn it. <laughs> Every, Every time. single time. Thank you so much for Thank taking you. the time to be on our podcast. It was really interesting. Really incredible. My pleasure. I'm going to have to listen to it just to pick up on everything that you said. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.